Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Christopher Rufo. Christopher is a journalist at the City Journal and he's also at the Center for Wealth and Poverty um, at the Discover Institute, I think. Sorry, Christopher, I got that all mixed up. That's it. Um, anyways, thank you for coming on. I was been following your stuff um, when you started putting out some of the stuff on um, like the CRT-based diversity trainings in the government and now you're moving on to schools. Um, like I've been following that kind of stuff for a couple of years now and seeing it going, you know, spreading further and further. And you're like one of the first real people who's been going out and actually showing what this stuff is in practice. Um, I know like James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and others have written about it in academia, but you've actually been showing what's going on in practice. So how did you get into that? And when did you start that? Yeah, I started uh, last summer. And, you know, honestly, it really came about at first by accident. I had a, uh, someone email me and said uh, that they were going through these horrific trainings on internalized white supremacy at the city of Seattle, um, and that I really should look into it. And uh, just out of curiosity, I filed a public records request, forgot about it a couple months later, uh, kind of received this trove of documents, and then publish a story on it, thinking that this would be a kind of interesting uh, story about kind of hyper progressive government in Seattle. And this single story just exploded and traveled everywhere, was covered by uh, a lot of different publications. And then all of a sudden I start getting, you know, dozens and dozens of emails every day from other people around the country saying that actually these same kind of programs are in my institution. And then I really focused in on federal government agencies. Uh, and that was the focus of my reporting for the first few months. Okay. I read, a, I've read a lot of critical race theory and, you know, like I said, I saw some of this coming in schools, but like, you know, in the federal government or even in Seattle, I mean, it's a city government, but they're separating people by race. And doesn't anyone in the government just stop for a second and think, well, maybe that's not right. Yeah, it's really it's it's really shocking. And in, in Seattle, for example, I broke a story with an image, uh, a set of images rather, of uh, King County Public Library training sessions. They had one uh, room with a poster that said uh, for whites only, essentially, and then uh, another poster for people of color. And it was to me visually reminiscent of the old segregation days when you had white and black water fountains in public parks. And it, it was just so shocking to see, you know, I grew up in the, you know, was born in the 1980s. So something segregation was long gone uh, and something that we only really looked at in history books. And to see something that just visually kind of had the exact same quality and characteristics, different intentions, but, but the same visual expression, I, I just found horrifying. And, and shocking and just, it, it, it bewilders me that nobody in these institutions that employ, in some cases, thousands of people said, actually, wait a minute, are we deliberately segregating people in separate physical spaces just because of their race? Uh, isn't this actually wrong? Um, and unfortunately, in a lot of these institutions, nobody is willing to step up uh, and, and dissent. Yeah. Um like, that's what I don't get is, I mean, obviously someone's sending you something because, you know, you weren't just like going out fishing or whatever, right? Like someone, you said someone sent you an email. So 
there are people who are concerned about it, but again, I, I've been following this for a while and it's just the only dog I have in any fight pretty much is free expression. But when like that kind of chill is going on in government departments now in schools um, with teachers and with students where someone's afraid to speak out against something that's like so obviously wrong. Like has, were you able to speak to anyone like these, like either the government organizations or the schools where they would give you an explanation for why? Yeah. I mean, they, they have, they, in, in, in most cases, they actually explain the rationale uh, explicitly in the documentation that they create. And um, the idea for the segregated spaces is, is that um, these are necessary uh, in order for, uh, for, for two reasons. One is you have to prioritize, you know, people of color and the experience of people of color. Um, and segregation is justified because if you're to talk about, uh, if you're to try to help white people uh, come to terms with their white privilege and white fragility and internalized white supremacy, to do so in front of people of color would require too much emotional labor and potentially trigger too much trauma on behalf of the people of color that it's not right to include them in the same room while they're deconstructing uh, white identities. Um, the other side is that um, it's also, uh, they say it's not people of color's job to help white people with their racism. So the idea that white people should have the obligation not to impose upon people of color, but to actually confront their own racism on their own uh, without demanding the time, energy, resources, or emotions uh, of others. So those are the two main justifications. Again, I don't agree with either of those. I think they're crazy, but, but I try to say, you know, that's what they're saying. That's the best case that they make. Yeah. Again, it's like, I don't get how, yeah, I understand critical race theory in colleges I mean, they teach a lot of stuff. Like you know, when I went to university, there were a lot of courses that were just out there. And it's like, hey, what are you wasting your time with this for? Um, but like, take away the Robin D'Angelo and the Ibram Kendi stuff. I can understand the legal standpoint of critical race theory and, you know, the frustration of things not moving fast enough for, you know, people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. And I can understand that frustration. Still, I'm still trying to wrap my head around people thinking that this is a good practice like this is a good way to solve racial issues in practice like haven't we tried all this stuff before yeah i mean the, the history of a lot of these ideas is pretty interesting and i think that um in in some ways it's really a kind of a, a historical process in which you had two competing strains of uh, of kind of civil rights movement uh, ideologies or ways of thinking. You had the very broadly, you know, the Martin Luther King kind of faction and direction and philosophy, and then the Malcolm X faction direct direction and philosophy. You also had people on that kind of more uh, aggressive, more militant side. Uh, you had, you know, the Black Panther movement. You had Angela Davis and the Communist Party, and then uh, assorted very violent militant groups. And um, in the 1960s, Martin Luther King's vision and political movement won. Um, they, they kind of soundly defeated uh, the, the more kind of activist and more militant 
um, kind of factions. Uh, and those ideas were really kind of relegated to history. Um, those ideas had decisively lost um, by, you know, really the early to mid 1970s. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward 50 years now, they're all being revived as if there's something new. Um, and they're all really just kind of reheated and in many cases, corporatized versions of the old kind of black liberation movement in the 1960s and 70s. But the, the strange thing now is that instead of the, the kind of twist now is that instead of true revolutionaries, I mean, people forget that, you know, Angela Davis is like, a, you know, speaking on college campuses now and included in all the podcasts or whatever. But at the time, she was truly a radical revolutionary. Um, but now the radical revolutionary ideology has been absorbed by establishment academics, by diversity trainers, by school districts, and by, you know, McDonald's. Uh, so now we have this strange world where McDonald's is trying to, you know, kind of absorb kind of black radicalism from 1971 and then make it into a corporate message. And I think that it's such a, it's such a really weird and bizarre and kind of fascinating intellectual world that we find ourselves in. Well, okay. Fascinating. Yes. I don't know about intellectual when Coca-Cola tells people to be less white. That's kind of weird. <laughs> like, yeah. But okay. All right. I, my family moved to Canada in the seventies. So you know, I was six years old in uh, 75 when we moved here. You know, so I saw Canada change from like the mid seventies through the eighties. And it wasn't a lot of overt racism here. Um, you know, I experienced some, but not a lot, but it was only around the late eighties when that PC craze started going strong. And it was from well-meaning, you know, suburban liberals like basically wasps right like the you know, white anglo-saxon protestants it's just mm -hmm. and it was it was well-meaning like i called it benevolent bigotry because it wasn't they weren't really being bigoted but it was just the stuff it was like so much focus on race and then it died down again then again the late 90s early 2000s you start seeing it up again I know like someone like Zach Goldberg was following it, but I don't know if you paid attention in the States to like the rise of like a rise of reporting on racism and linking that to an actual rise in racism. Like I, I'm not trying to blame one on the other, um, but especially like in schools now, like I've noticed that this went back to 2010 in high schools in some high schools in some parts of the States. But when you're getting, majority white population to focus on their race like why are people scratching their heads wondering why white supremacy is going up yeah well, i guess you have to really you, you have to look at it in, in two you have to separate out the kind of narrative from the reality in some cases they overlap but in some cases they don't and i think you've seen from those charts that zach goldberg has this explosive increase in narrative surrounding systemic racism and white privilege and white supremacy um I don't know. Is there a strong body of evidence that suggests that there's more racism today than there was in 2000 or that there was in 1980? Um, again, I, I think there's a lot of ways you could look at that. You could look at that kind of factually or empirically, but I think that it's really hard to argue what the critical race theorists argue that racism essentially is unchanged 
in the last century. You know, they basically say racism is as bad now as it was in 1950. It's just become more subtle and more insidious uh, and more uh, kind of invisible, but it still has the same form. It's still upholding the same power structure. And I just, I don't know. I have a really hard time believing that. I don't think it's um, matches with most people's historical experience. And, you know, certainly in the work I've done as a reporter, as a documentary filmmaker in many parts of the country, in the United States and many parts of the world, I, I just, I feel like it is at odds with most people's basic experience and perception of the world around them. Yeah. Okay. Like the whole critical race theory thing. Like I, again, when Bell started writing, when he shifted from the critical legal stuff to the critical race theory in like the early seventies, like I think around like 73 or something like that. Um, you know, I can understand where he was coming from and, you know, okay, it's not moving fast enough. He, um, I can get it, but to say that now, like to say that even in the late nineties to say that, okay, it's not as good as it was, you know, it's all, it's, it's the same in the late nineties as it was in 1890, you know, like there's no, there's no comparison. And I don't know if it was just an easy sell or if it was, you know, like why you would want to buy into something so depressing. Um, but when you mentioned the narrative, like I've, this is just something I've looked at and I kind of, I think that like this started right after nine 11 and I'm not saying that there wasn't a spin before there's always been spin, but spin was kind of based in facts as opposed to like, you know, using the spin to shape the facts. It was like the facts were shaping whatever your spin was. Um, but it was after nine 11 that the narrative thing really took off. Like I can almost see it where they made patriotism um, a racist thing. And then that carried on. I mean, things like the Tea Party didn't help. But you went from that to like, okay, you know, Islamophobia, United States racist. You know, if you're patriot, you're racist. And then, you know, go on through the Obama years. So like, I've just seen this build up. Like I've, I, I've followed it in relation to Islam. Um, just because where I worked and also because of my background and stuff. And when I came back in 2014, like all the crazy stuff being said, like, uh, you know, I got called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam and things like that. And like, that's when I started looking into it. So I don't know. I think this narrative, like the work Zach Goldberg's done is good, but I think the narrative started like right after nine 11. I think it's, it got out of academia in the late nineties and it slowly started creeping into other places. Like, I think mean, that would be an interesting thing to kind of look at to see how, like when this stuff started changing, like when that change made like happened. I think, you know, uh, I can give at least some shed some light uh, based on my investigative reporting. And it, it seems like a lot of the groundwork was laid in the most progressive cities uh, in 2010, kind of circa 2010. Uh, so a little more than 10 years ago. And you see a lot of these departments of equity or diversity and inclusion really kind of standing up at that time uh, in these kind of more kind of vanguard areas, you could call them. And then there was this kind of explosion around 2014, 2015. And I think a lot of it emerges from just if you look at the kind of timing and sequence, um, uh, but this is before Trump. It started a number of years before Trump, 2013, 2014. Um, and I think part of it was a bit of a kind of 
the excitement of the Obama era, you remember 2008, people were like moved. People were truly touched. People felt like this was such a great uh, symbol of, of progress, of transcending racial divisions. And the kind of the halo effect of that started to wear off and people started to feel um, okay, that wasn't the kind of magic solution that some people were hoping it was going to be. And actually there are these problems. And I think it turned into a bit of pessimism. And if you look at, you know, critical race theory, it's an explicitly pessimistic philosophy. And I think that pessimism, that kind of cultural pessimism that many people may have felt on the left, then could latch into that ideology because that that ideology gave them a rationalization for that pessimism. It gave them a reason to say, "Well, see, um, you know, you know, you know, you know, Obama is a symbol, but but actually was a neoliberal president who maintained the structures of oppression." There's a famous kind of the most famous Black Lives Matter activist in Seattle, actually called Barack Obama. Uh, I think something like a white supremacist in blackface. I mean really vicious, like vituperative stuff. And, but I think it shows that the far left was really uh, by that time disappointed, disillusioned. Uh, and that quickly turned into what I think is the driving emotion behind a lot of this stuff, which is rage. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it's, it's manufactured though. Like, because I'd, I'd like to get into what's going on in the schools, but I mean, this is, you were training people to be outraged. Like, I mean, if you look at the, you know, the people who teach some of this stuff, like the critical race theory, even the gender theory or the queer theory, like any of the critical social justice stuff, they're explicitly saying they're, you know, activist scholars. They're putting activism before scholarship. So, I mean, you're, you're manufacturing outrage. You're teaching people to look, you know, whatever. It just happened within the last couple of months in Canada. So like a national real estate association said, realtors shouldn't use the term master bedroom anymore. <clears throat> use primary bedroom. And it's, I mean, you're going looking for stuff to be pissed off at. So, I mean, like the. Yeah. I think the Washington Post yesterday or a couple of days ago had, you know, these bird names are legacies of white supremacy. It's like, all right, you're mad about some obscure bird names. Like, you know, I, I think though, I wonder too though, Obed, I think like, it's like, is this really a sign of progress? Is this like the, the, the kind of 800 pound gorilla or the elephant in the room, right? Where um, we have made in reality, in kind of those basic human political terms, we've made so much progress that we now have the luxury of being mad about bird names or square dancing or, you know, uh, you know, the, the terminology for bedrooms and real estate listings. I think that th that is what I hope. I mean, I hope that that's true. And I think that that is true in a lot of ways where um, we're so obsessed with symbols um, and that we lose sight of the fact that in reality, um, many things are much better than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, like that's, again, this is, like I, we're in a narrative fight now. I mean, you can show, you can throw graphs in people's faces all you want. I mean, like, you know, uh, there's been a few articles out recently about, okay, well, look how well, you know, uh, South Asians are doing, look how well Nigerians are doing. I think what whites are number 17 on median income. 
so there's 17 other racial categories or like, you know, nationalities, whatever you call them that do better than white people in the United States. So that's a really weird white supremacist system, but like, again, you're, we're in a narrative war. It's, I think there's gotta be, you know, stuff that like people like Chloe Valdery are trying, I think it'd be kind of interesting. Um, there's also someone up here, up here in Canada, Ishard Munji. Um, she's got a new, uh, she's working on a new like diversity training program and something that's more empowering instead of like this pessimistic stuff, because I mean, people are being told, I, I see it up here in Canada. We had four senators yesterday or was it yesterday or two days ago on a zoom conference talking about how Canada is a supremely racist country. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know um, where, uh, where were you born? Obed? I was born in India. Okay. Oh, I, India. Okay. Yeah. You know, then, then, then you would, then you would, you know, probably have traveled widely as if I, and it's like, you, you would be very surprised uh, to go to, you know, my, 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 my father immigrated from, from Europe, from Italy and, you know, all over, everywhere I've gone around the world in, in Asia, in South Asia, in Europe, in the Middle East, um, you know, you see like really, you know, in, in, in some cases, in some countries, really brutal racism and racial conflict. And there's this perception of the United States that is at odds with the perception that we have of ourselves now. And I think it's, uh, it's just, uh, it, it really is kind of a sad thing. And I, I don't know as much about Canada, obviously, I'm, I'm an American, but, um, you know, Americans have, all, have always thought about Canada as like a, you know, kind of left wing Americans rather have always thought about Canada as an enlightened version of the United States. Well, um, and then, so know, it's funny for us now to hear that even Canada, the, the, the left in Canada is now engaging in this self-criticism. Uh, it's, it's no, but it's, okay. Like we're so close. I, you know, Trudeau senior. So Pierre Trudeau, he'd said that living this close to the United States is like sleeping in bed with an elephant. You know, every time it moves, you wake up. Um, and I mean, we get everything from you guys, uh, Canadian television, you know, has had a few good things, but it's mainly we get American television, American movies, American everything. So as soon as the George Floyd incident happened, our prime minister talked about police killing people and like massacres by police and, you know, police going crazy. And then you look at the stats from 2000 to 2017, there were 450 killings by the police. So less than half of what you guys get in a year we had in 17 years. And our prime minister is talking about police going wild in Canada. And, and then, and then divide that by the number that were unarmed and then divide that by the number that were not you know, threatening or engaging in, you know, trying to run someone over the car. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a minuscule number. And I think that the narrative is really important. And I think, you know, as I've really thought about it is we're, we're such a saturated culture in media and symbols and now social media that that our, our kind of abstract ideas and ideologies and beliefs are so disconnected from our real physical experience that you have a, essentially a dueling narratives. You have a kind of right-wing narrative, a left-wing narrative. They engage with each other. They battle with each other. They kind of take territory, seed territory. Um, and to me, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm part of that discourse, part of that debate, part of that discussion. But I do find myself oftentimes feeling like that's kind of like my online life, uh, my very engaged kind of narrative abstract life. And then I actually look at my real life and my family and my local institutions and my neighborhood. And those two things are, are getting really far apart. 
And I wonder how much further apart they go uh, before things really start kind of breaking apart and those threads that are being stretched actually start to break. Um, I don't know. We've, we've gone pretty, we've gone maybe further than I thought. So maybe there's, maybe there's more room left. Uh, I don't know. But I mean, the, the whole narrative thing, like this is why I'm like worried about the schools. Um, okay. I'm not a parent. I, I have a niece and a nephew, but you know, I want an educated population so that when I'm retired and the people are looking after like our government pensions, they know what they're doing. You know, my doctors are going to treat me whether or not we're the same skin color. Like, like it's like, that's, that's where I'm worried about. And like, I've, you know, it's like I said, I've been following what's been going on in the schools, but some of the stuff you're putting out about what's happening in the schools is pretty horrific. I mean, there's that one in um, Las Vegas, and you put out some stuff yesterday about that school in Buffalo, and I'm just looking at it like, again, what are these people thinking? Like, like, I know. So yeah, I mean, in Buffalo, for 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 those of you listening that don't didn't see the story, it's um they've established a whole kind of department of anti-racism. Essentially, uh, they have a diversity czar who's overhauled the curriculum. She's having schools, uh, mandating schools celebrate the 13 principles of Black Lives Matter, um, including uh, kind of transgenderism and and disrupting the Western nuclear family dynamics and committing to a kind of vision of collectivism rather than individualism. And then takes students through a, a series of kind of like snippet, snipped articles that are shoehorned into curriculum. Uh, to, to the curriculum and into individual lesson plans that are a program of very kind of left-wing political activism. You know, they were saying that, quote, all white people uh, contribute, contrib contribute to the perpetuation of systemic racism, uh, that white people are, quote, unfairly rich uh, because they derive their income, they derive their wealth from slavery and discrimination. Um, and all of these really divisive, um, divisive uh, concepts that are being taught to kids as young as kindergarten. Um, and and the, the, the real irony of that story is that meanwhile, less than 20% of students in that school district in Buffalo, New York, can read and write at proficiency. So they're, they're failing to do the very basics of education, actually giving tools, uh, giving the students the tools to critically engage with ideas on their own. And then they're just force feeding them what they should think, how they should feel, who's to blame. Um, and this stuff is really dangerous, I think. And um, I think some parents are apathetic. They don't know what's happening. Uh, that's, I think, a reason why my reporting has taken off the way that it has is because no one else is really thinking about it uh, or, or, or really digging into it in a, in a systematic way. But I think it's also people just kind of accept, well, okay, yeah, the schools, public institutions, that's fine. Um, you know, don't rock the boat. Don't speak out. And um, it's not going to end well. I think that it's like we need to raise the alarm now, not for, you know, I don't care about a diversity training in some federal agency, whatever, who cares? Um, but if you take the worst elements that are now being filtered through schools, um, it would have long-term negative consequences. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like I look back to the gangs in the eighties and then, you know, then you had a rise in skinhead groups, um, kind of as a counter to the gangs, but it was also, you know, just territory to sell dope, right? Uh, 
and when you listen to like the police or the FBI or, you know, any kind of like counseling or anything like that, it was, you know, these people go after the loners and the kids that feel disenfranchised, the kids that feel set upon, the kids that feel, you know, aggrieved. I'm like, that's what you're doing. You're setting up, you're setting up a smorgasbord for, you know, Antifa, Proud Boys, Boogaloo, whatever, whatever you want. I mean, you know, why were white American kids going joining ISIS? Yeah. You got to look at some of this stuff. And it just, again, I, I, I look, okay, I, I take a like, kind of a long view on this. And it just, I look at some of the stuff that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff did. And then if you, um, I don't know if you've ever followed Let Grow, um, like Free Range Kids. And, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and so if you look at the safetyism that came around kids with like the stranger danger and all that, and so in the mid to late eighties, that's when the helicopter parenting really got started being pushed, and then now you you got to the point where it was you know where it's now where you know mother leaves her kids alone for a few hours so she can go to work, and she gets arrested, or kids get taken to child protective services like that one. It was a woman. Um, she went to work in a pizzeria. She left her kids at a motel across the street or something like that. And she got arrested for it. I mean, wow. You know, so parents, they're taking their kids everywhere. They don't really have, I don't think they have the time to go through the curriculum. And if you look at, you know, if you like single parenthood's gone up. So if you're a single parent, you have even less time. So it's just like, okay, you're teaching, they're teaching the kids anti-racism. It's a good yeah. thing, right? Like they, that's as far as you're going. I, I think there's, I don't think there was as like a, a big master plan that someone laid out. I just think that all these things joined up at one point. And then you have this stuff going through the schools. Like I'm, again, I'm looking at these curriculum and, you know, the, like the ethnic maths curriculum that they had in Seattle two years ago. Now that's spreading. Uh, the things like, you know, if a kid comes in late, if they're not white, don't penalize them. Like things like that. Like, I don't know what they're saying there. Like, are they saying that, you know, because I'm Brown, I'm lazy. So I shouldn't be expected to do my work on time. Like I have no idea. They're saying two things and I'll, I'll try to characterize it, you know, as accurately as possible. They're saying, first of all, um, that discrimination or disparities in school discipline, are evidence of discrimination. And so they're mandating that stu that schools have kind of disciplinary proceedings uh, 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 among students of different racial groups in proportion to how uh, those racial groups are represented in the school population at large. So if, you know, Asian kids represent, you know, or, or let's say Latino kids represent 10% of the school, they should only represent 10% of the disciplinary proceedings. So then teachers, given that mandate, which works from the, the kind of, the, works from the future into the past, they say, okay, well, if I have to meet that quota, meet that mandate, I can't, if, if for, for in that classroom, just for argument's sake, um, there are more groups, more students of one certain group that are coming to class late, like your example. Well, you're gonna have to filter your disciplinary enforcement to match those categories. It's just like a quota system. The second thing, though, and the deeper issue that I think is totally strange um, is that they say that punctuality is a white value uh, and that punctuality, um, uh, politeness, objectivity, uh, rationality, 
um, you know, uh, quantitative thinking. All of these things are, are, are oppressive white values. And that, you know, it, your question is, 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 then the next question, it really, it really deserves to be asked. I'm saying, well, wait a minute, punctuality? Like, are you saying that it is not part of cultures of, of India or China or Africa or, or South America to show up on time? I mean, people show up to work on time. This seems really condescending. Um, and so I think that a lot of these categories that they create that are used as kind of methods of attacking what they see as the white dominant culture actually end up being extremely condescending to anyone who thinks those are actually just good values. Um, and, you know, like rationality. I mean, I think like rationality is, is good. And I think that everyone has the ability to access rationality. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'd be curious about your experience in a personal way. Like, uh, okay, like that, that to me, that's so insulting. Like there are, like I said, I read a lot of this stuff. I was, I had the luxury of time cause I was on a medical leave. So I spent about 18 months reading almost nothing but critical race theory and intersectionality. So I went through a lot of that. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read this book called acting white and the two people who wrote it are making like critical pedagogy. So they're involved in the curriculum for schools. The prologue of the book was how Obama talked and acted white oh, God. and how that's a bad, and the rest of the book was why you shouldn't act white if you're not white. And the things like, again, like, you know, rationality. Uh, okay. Like I've done a couple of threads on this on Twitter. Cause it just really pissed me off the first time I saw it. I'm like, there's a quote from Plato talking about Egyptians and mathematics. And he was saying, you know, like little children in Egypt are like men. And then like, we in Greece are like pigs. You know, we hold Greece up as this, and, I, and I'm nothing to take away from like the classics. Like I think that, but you know, we hold Greece up as a standard of like thought and all that. And here's Plato saying the same thing about Egypt. Hmm. And, you know, these people aren't, Egyptians weren't white. Um, you know, it's the same. Okay. For our math, we use Arabic numerals that came from India. The concept of zero came from India. I mean, like the whole thing is so historical and it's, it's so insulting. I mean, you know, and the other part about math and, and, and is like, and, and computer programming, for example, I've spent a lot of time, my wife works in, in technology. She's worked at Microsoft and Amazon and other companies. So sometimes I'll go to the office with her and, uh, you know, oftentimes you'll go into a big kind of, uh, I remember going to Microsoft one time, and this is actually a funny story. Um, I went into the office at Microsoft. There's a massive floor in this big sky kind of multi-story building. And it is like almost entirely uh, East Asians and Indians, like South Indians, um, South Asian Indians, and like almost everybody. And it's like they're performing at kind of that mathematics and, and rationality and logic at a very high professional level. I think they would be very insulted if I came and said, you guys and your rationality and your math, it's just kind of whiteness and all this stuff. But I remember what something funny happened. Some one of the one of the women who was working in the office counter said, "Oh man, you look just like Mike." I was like, "Oh okay." I'm like, all right, okay. And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, come here, come here." So we go to the other side of the room, and she starts calling out across the way, "Mike, Mike, Mike!" And the one white guy that works on the floor, he pops his head up out of the cubicle. This guy looks nothing like me, and then he and then they're like, "You guys look the same." And then, and then, I, and then the, the guy, Mike, looks at me, he just shakes his head and sits back down. And uh, it was just one of those funny moments where being in Seattle, you know, being in, a, in the United States and then these funny cultural moments. And I don't know, could someone take offense at that? 
could Mike take offense? Could I take offense? Could programmers take offense? Could the Asians take offense? Maybe. But the other way of looking at it is looking at it that like people of different cultures have different kind of expectations that they bring. And, and actually it's a really cool when they come together in an unexpected way, in a funny way. Um, and, and for me, that was like a kind of a beautiful moment. It was a really fun, uh, a fun example of what I think is like a healthy way of engaging with people, which is give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't take offense uh, and assume that people are trying to uh, connect with you, not as a racial category, but actually as a human being. And if there's some kind of epiphenomenal or peripheral kind of awkwardness because of this kind of racial conversation, cross-racial conversation, just enjoy it, lean into it, you know, give people grace, give people understanding, give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, and it seems like we've just lost so much of that. Nope. I mean, okay. Again, like there's this acting white and whatever, but you know, growing up, um, it was predominantly, you know, like I said, wasp, but, you know, I had friends who were First Nations. I had friends who were uh, Chinese, other Indians. You know, there were black kids, Jewish kids. Like we were all a mix. And yeah, when we were playing, we were hanging out. You know, we'd say, you know, one of my one of my you know closest and oldest friends was German. I, I'd call him a Nazi, and like, okay, I did. You know, we're only joking around and stuff, and he'd say stuff to me and. You know, or he'd call me Apu or something, and like you know, he, he'd pretend he was Apu from The Simpsons. You know, like okay, but it, we didn't mean anything by it. We weren't, you know, it's it's not like we would go out in public and go up to random strangers and say that. Have you heard Avoy Zizek? Uh, uh, his his take on this stuff. Um, he makes the point, and uh, he basically he makes a point in a, in, a, in one of his talks where he says, actually, when you are able to then joke with a person and and make those kind of cracks at each other, it's a sign that you actually have a, a friendship. Um, um, and I remember that. I mean, even growing up, like. Yeah, I grew up in Sacramento, Sacramento, California, I guess at one time was listed like the most racially integrated city in the United States. Huge mix of people um, from all over the world. And uh, I remember guys would make fun of me for being Italian. They'd call me a mafia guy. They'd call me a Goomba or a WAP or all these, you know, kind of old anti-Italian slurs. And, you know, um, and we'd get into it with each other in those ways. And it, um, they wouldn't do it now. Nobody would do it now. People are so scared to even go there. And in a lot of ways, it's good, right? I mean, a lot of the, that language is, is, has been used uh, in a harmful manner in the past and can still be used in a harmful manner today. But we also have lost a bit of ease of conversation because people are so scared that not only, you know, if you call me a Goomba, I mean, I'm not going to be mad, but I could be mad, you know, theoretically. But people are even mad to like say, Hey, listen up guys, because that's, you know, negating people who don't identify on the gender spectrum or whatever. I mean, there's so many little faux pas. It's almost impossible to keep up. And I've, I've learned in my reporting, people are just terrified to say anything. And so our, our range of thinking, our range of feeling, our actual expression as human beings is really being uh, kind of narrowed by this fear, uh, restricted by this fear. And I, I don't know if it's actually good. I don't know if we've actually, um, uh, I, I don't know if actually society is better because of it. Um, if you look at it in the big picture. No, I mean, okay. There's like everything you can't, like you said, you know, like, Hey guys or whatever, just the, the smallest little slip can be a huge faux pas. But again, 
you know, if I'm hanging out with my buddies and these are people like I've known since high school or, you know, we go on a fishing trip or something. Yeah. We're still going to talk to each other the same way. You know, there's, there's not, but if someone new comes along, that's a, you don't know that person. Like, so you said like, yeah, it's, it's a thing of friendship. It's a thing of, you know, you, you know, that person, you, you're, you're used to them. You know what you can say, what you can't say. Like, I mean, you know, your friends, like there's certain things you can't say to your, you know, some of your friends because you know, that's going to really upset them and you don't, but if there's someone new, then you kind of like, you know, you're kind of testing each other out, but the fear of words, I mean, you know, we're descendant of the people who came out of the trees and like, you know, explored the next Valley. And here we are cowering because some teacher in a video conference said the Chinese word nega. And oh my God, we might have to fire him now because it sounds like something else. Yeah. I mean, they've they've taken repressive tolerance and they put it like made it phonetic now. Yeah, I know. And and you know, there's a there's a lot of those words that are kind of uh kind of kind of orally, like or, kind of they sound the same as other words. And it's like, and then and then even like the context too, right? It's like not only is it not the word. But it's used in a context that has nothing to do with the other uh, phrase. And yeah, I think it's just, um, it, it really is, it's just disappointing. And I think that it's really disappointing because we have the opportunity right now with progress in technology, with progress in communications, uh, with progress in so many facets of our kind of technological life, let's say. Um, and yet we seem to be kind of more restricted than ever in what we want to say. So there's this paradox, right? Where, uh, or maybe not a paradox, maybe just a, a tension or a contradiction where we have the ability now to speak with anyone at any time, to read any book, um, to listen to anyone's voice. Um, we have more access and ability to communicate than ever. And yet it feels like we have less to say. Um, and I know that, you know, this is not all created equally. I, I, I you know, I'm an, I'm Italian as we talked about. And, um, and, you know, I, I still go back to our, our home village in Italy in the summertime uh, as much as I can. And it's like, even in parts of Europe, it's totally different. They're not gripped by this panic. And the conversations I have in Italy, for example, are very freewheeling. They're very open. They're very, provocative. They're very engaging. They're very sometimes heated debate. I have family members that are diehard kind of Marxist Leninist communists, not Marxist, -Len Mar you know, uh, yeah. maybe Marxist Leninist. I think that's probably accurate. Uh, and then other ones that are more, you know, conservative or kind of European conservatives and they get after each other, man, and it gets heated, but it feels like no one is trying to play these stupid linguistic games. No one is trying to play the kind of cancel culture tormentor. And people have a vitality to them. The debate has a kind of freedom and openness. And uh, I, I, I found that like, I don't know, I've been engaging on this, these issues for in kind of politically and, and, and with the kind of some, some kind of a platform for uh, now about two years. And I've only had one debate, only one debate. And I've offered to debate many times, uh, engaged, solicited, never turned it down. Only had one debate. Um, it was on homelessness in the city of Seattle, and people were so upset about this debate. I was supposed to debate a kind of very liberal progressive law professor on homelessness policy that they actually, you know, ran a campaign to call the venue and threaten the venue to shut the whole event down. 
like not even a, a kind of left-right debate. We eventually found another venue. But even, even when we got to the debate, the, the first thing out of the, my opponent's mouth was, you know, really this shouldn't be a debate because I think that if you, uh, you know, if you and I had a beer for a couple hours, you'd really see and you'd really agree with my, my point of view. <laughs> and it's like, wait, no, this is a debate. We had to be been canceled. We're here like, no, I don't agree with you. I absolutely do, do not agree with you. <laughs> like, that's the point of this. Debate. And it's like, I, I, I just wonder, I don't know. I see these great clips from like the 60s and 70s in the US and you'd have like William F. Buckley debating Black Panthers. And it's like, we don't have, I don't know, maybe I'm missing it, but it feels like we have so little of that today. And I think that's a huge loss for the public. Yeah, but I mean, like, that's the whole safetyism thing, right? We have to keep everyone protected from harm. You change the, the definition of harm. And it's, again, it's like, okay, I think that's, uh, okay, like I said, my only dog in any, you know, you know, the only dog I have in any fight is free speech. But like, when you go, go back a little further and like take enlightenment values, you know that because of that we're the only people so liberal western democracies like anything based off the enlightenment we're the only people who will sit back and look at our mistakes and we'll call them out i don't know if we went too far with that um like and i'm not saying we shouldn't i'm still saying you know there's there's if something comes to light bring it to light let's don't don't hide it but i don't think we should wallow in it i mean like the stuff they're doing now, the, the, like again with the math curriculums, where I think in Oregon, you know, asking for people to show their work is white supremacy. Um, Leicester University getting rid of medieval English and getting rid of Chaucer. It was a few years ago. I think Cambridge was talking about getting rid of Shakespeare, and then like in the states, getting rid of Mark Twain, getting rid of you know Kill a Mockingbird, uh, get rid of Melville. Like, you're destroying your own history. You, it's like it's it's sad like okay i worked with the military in afghanistan and i saw where the bamian buddha stood or used to stand and the taliban blew them down and then like you look at what isis did with palmyra i mean they destroyed local history and i mean especially like things like palmyra and bamian buddhas those things belong to the world but you know a university in england not teaching shakespeare or getting rid of chaucer is like to me it's there's an equivalency there. You're, you're getting rid of history. You're getting rid of your own history. It's it, like, it, that saddens me a lot. It saddens me too. And I think that it's, um, it's based on this kind of false idea that, um, that if, if, uh, if something happened in history, um, it, it's not, it's not merely enough to, to kind of separate the bad from the good, criticize uh, where you can improve and move forward. It actually has to be destroyed. Because the existence of the kind of even the historical record or the historical uh, imagination of that in the culture is uh, is itself an impediment to progress, is itself a kind of obstacle to the revolution. And this is, you know, like like the cultural revolution in China that when they when Chairman Mao and then his kind of apparatchiks launched the campaign, they talked about um, destroying the four olds. So basically, any of the old uh, habits, ideas, customs, and 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 works um, that were holding back the kind of utopian communist project, and it wasn't enough merely to criticize them uh, or to transcend them or to um, uh, or to move beyond them. 
you actually had to go back into the past and obliterate them, erase them from the collective memory. And it's like when you open up that door, um, it ends in many cases, certainly in the Cultural Revolution, in in just bloodshed because um, you're, you're you're seeking to to do something that is like fundamentalist in nature, and also. Um, it, it also kind of, you're cutting off your own roots. And obviously like, look, the United States and, and Canada and any country, any nation at any time has ugly stuff in their, in its past, right? This is a universal. Um, but I think that a, a kind of mature historical cognition or historical perspective is to take those things, to be honestly assess them, uh, and then to kind of also take, uh, also take stock of the progress that's been made. Um, and, and I'm, I'm confident that, uh, um, that we have made progress o- o- over time in, 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 in this country. And, uh, and I think that um, the folks who want to kind of destroy all the symbols and histories, um, it's, it's, it's not simply that they say, Hey, these things are actually specifically bad. Um, they want to kind of wipe it all away in order to usher in a totally new world. Uh, and the past is something that they find uh, an obstacle. Yeah. I mean, again, like it's, I was speaking to someone about this uh, last weekend. So there was a paper that was written in 2001 called a virtuous cut. And this came out of, I can't remember which university, but it was a big university. I think it was an Ivy league school. Um, Anyways, the paper was about how female genital mutilation was virtuous and to try to stop it was another form of colonialism. Then you go back to 2019 uh, at the end of the year, like the protest in Hong Kong, they were holding up the Union Jacks and the American flag. Yeah. And there were, you know, quote unquote, serious people who said, well, democracy is just another form of colonization. So it'd be better if the CCP took over. Then last year, the New York Times ran that same article. It's like, I see a lot of parallels between the way Islam was dealt with and then the way they're talking about with race now. Like it's, so when Ayan Hirsi Ali started speaking up, you know, the only people who would really talk to her were Fox News. It's like, oh, she's right wing now. You know, it's like, well, assholes, you wouldn't speak to her. And it was, it's the same thing over and over and over again. So now, you know, Oh, John McWhorter's right wing. It's like, in what world is John McWhorter right wing? Or, I mean, Camille Foster, after he went on Bill Maher recently, like some guy called him a house Negro. It's just like, like the most disgusting insults. And it's, I see, I see so many parallels between what ex-Muslims got or uh, reform Muslims at the start of the 2000s and to what's going on now to, you know, any black person who's speaking out against this stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I don't know the history of the kind of ex-Muslims in North America. I've seen some of them, some of their materials and, and writing, but I, I think the principle is always the same, right? Uh, the, the the kind of dissenter from within your own ranks is seen as a kind of greater transgression than your, than just a simple one of your opponents. I think even Barry Weiss, who's like, um, you know, who, who uh, you know, is kind of surprised sometimes by the level of vitriol and kind of just deranged lunacy that gets thrown her way. She's a very kind of calm, reasonable person. She's, I think, definitely center left. That's how I would, how I would describe her. Um, and yet, because she had been at the New York Times and had dissented, um, 
people feel like this sense of kind of betrayal, which leads to a sense of, of rage, right? It's like um, any kind of uh, apostate in, yeah. in, in a religious context. It's the same thing with our political tribes. And, um, and then I think especially the most, the ugliest expression of that is in our kind of racial categories where, you know, dating back to, 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 to Clarence Thomas, certainly, and even before that, um, where, you know, if you're a black intellectual that's in the center or the center right and criticizing or, or center left and criticizing the far left, um, you know, you're going to take the heat from people. And I think that it's um, how I see it is like, man, you are putting yourself at kind of uh, at, 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 at some risk. Right. And it takes real courage um, like a John McWhorter or a Glenn Laurie or, or Camille uh, and, and those guys who have been really speaking up lately about the kind of dangers of the very far left. I mean, those guys have a lot of courage. I, I'm, I'm personally inspired by many of them because they're willing to basically stake out their position um, and take that kind of uh, blowback in response. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's them, there's also, but uh, one of the people though, um, cause I, I know you wrote about uh, her and I, I, I don't want to get this wrong, but I, I think you're involved a bit with this was um, that lady out of Las Vegas who's suing her school, you know, someone like her, I mean, she's like okay, a John McWhorter's, you know, he's written books. He's been on CNN. He's got some fame. So he's got a little more gravitas, but she's just, you know, a mom who's like pissed off about what's going on with her kids. Like someone like that. It's like, she's got a lot of courage. Yeah, she does. Yeah. And I think that that's what it's going to take. It's going to take everyday people. And um, mm. yeah. And, and maybe I think you're, you're making also a good point is that we shouldn't just focus on the people who are in the intellectual sphere, but actually people who are uh, kind of like humble heroes, I think where they're, they're, you know, they're not trying to fight these uh, kind of intellectual battles at a national stage, but they're actually saying, hey, look, this is important to me because this is my kid's school, um, or this is, you know, the church that I attend, or this is uh, my local government, you know, that I rely on to provide services. And uh, I, I think that in, in a lot of ways, those are the folks that are honestly even putting themselves more in the crosshairs, more at risk, because people can lose jobs, they can lose, uh, you know, they can, they can get kind of trashed in the media with, with no platform to defend themselves. And uh, I, there are a lot of stories like that. And people, you know, I always find it strange when people argue like, cancel culture isn't real. And it's like, well, I mean, how many stories do we need before it's like, I mean, it's it, to convince you because it's like, these are people that are kind of normal everyday people, private citizens um, that, that in are taking tremendous risk to stand up. And uh, I've reported on a number of them, but I'll tell you in my reporting, um, I would say more than 95% of my sources within American institutions that are giving me documents um, asked to be asked to remain anonymous because they're too scared to speak out. Yeah. I mean, okay. That's, you know, I, you know, if you're sitting there, if you're working, it's, you're providing for your family. I can see that. I can, cause just the way the prevailing winds are going, but like on that topic, like, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but you, I just saw, I think you'd put that out. There was what New Hampshire and now West Virginia are coming up with, uh, I guess either bills or something, uh, or 
I don't know if they're executive orders, but kind of like what Trump did. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, it's similar to what what Trump Trump did. And last year, you know, the administration said, hey, you, you, you can't hold these, tra- you can hold diversity training sessions, you can, you can do, you can do that. But what you can't do is discriminate, or you can't denigrate, stereotype or demean people on the basis of race and sex, uh, race or sex, rather. And, and state legislatures are now trying to take some of that that concept basically codifying into state law saying, you know, diversity training programs or school curricula um, cannot demean people because of their race, uh, cannot assign collective guilt to people because of their race, um, and then cannot traffic in uh, very divisive racial stereotypes against uh, any group. So the kind of beauty of this is that it would prevent both the kind of the Klan from designing a school curriculum saying that all black people are bad. It would also prevent the critical race theorists from designing a curriculum that says all white people are bad. So we could use a simple single set of single standard for everyone that takes out the kind of racist and neo or neo racist fringes uh, on both sides of the political spectrum. Well, great. Look, I know you got to go, so I don't want to keep you much longer. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been great. And thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, thank you. Good to talk to you.